Welcome everybody to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for April 14th. I'm sorry, I'm so confused because it's 11 a.m., which is a very strange and unusual time. But today is also a very big news day. Um, Elon apparently wants to really get the edit button, and so is going to buy the whole company to make that happen. Um, but before before we get into that whole conversation, um, we've got Gergay, uh, who writes the Pragmatic, Enge- pra- <laughs> Pragmatic Engineer newsletter on Substack, which is, I guess, the number one technology newsletter is that right? Yeah, um, it's, it's a number, number one paid. Yeah, number one paid. Well, congratulations. That's 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 a that's a quite the distinction. I'm here to talk to us about a number of things. Uh, one of which is the the collapse of fast uh, engineering culture. What the hell is going on with Atlassian? There's a whole bunch of like background noise and radiation kind of I think happening sort of in the tech space right now. Um, and you know you've kind of got your your finger on the pulse of it. But before we dive into some of the things you've been writing about, talking about. Um, uh, you want to start with a little more of an introduction, um, Brian? What do you, what do you think? Yeah, um, so l- l- let's start this way. Um, l- let's talk about fast specifically at first, and then I want to talk about um, uh, going into if if you're a, a hire at a startup, the 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 risks that could be involved, like a deeper dive into that, and then conversely. A deeper dive into well, what if I join a, a, an established company, a fang company, or whatever? Um, but before we do that, also let me um, state some priors here, which is um, you know both both of you have worked for startups, have worked for major tech companies, and I have not. Um, I've never worked for anybody except for FedEx for six. Has months. it ever interest you, or is it is it that it doesn't interest you? It just never happened. So, <laughs> okay. um, so, so, but the reason I'm I'm saying that is is not to hi hat anybody, no, but no, to sure. say I'm I, I want to be sort of I want this episode to be educational for people that are like maybe gonna join a startup or a major tech company, um, and so I'm gonna be the audience surrogate and ask you know dumb questions also because I'm dumb about this. So. As I always say to Chris, a lot of times I'm going to play the dumb role because that's useful in this conversation. So, um, Gergay, let's let's start specifically specifically with fast. Um, the thing that I shared on the long reads last week was but actually one, one more new- thing though. I think Gergay needs to yeah. provide a little more background uh, oh, yeah, about yeah, his, go ahead. His, his experience um, working for for big tech companies just to sort of set the groundwork. And then we'll good idea, go into good that. idea. Yeah, yeah. See, we're doing it on the fly. All right, we make it up as we go. Let's do it. Yeah, so I, I I've been a software engineer for I was a software engineer for like a good like ten fifteen years or so. I, I worked my way up slowly. So I I started. I'm actually original from Hungary. So I start. I worked at a local small shop. I moved to the UK. Worked at agencies first, and then my first kind of step into a bigger company was at JP Morgan, where I worked at a trading desk, which is you know like a big company, big money. It's a bank. And then I, I was lucky enough to, to join Skype right when Microsoft bought it, uh, and Microsoft left Skype alone. So like for that whole my whole time at Microsoft, it, it felt like Skype. It was a scrappy startup culture. We were doing all sorts of crazy stuff, and then uh, I, I joined another startup called Skyscanner, uh, and and then I, I ended up at Uber. Uh, I joined Uber in Amsterdam when there were about twenty engineers in Amsterdam. Like the, the there was an office of maybe a hundred or two hundred people. This was the European headquarters, and uh, four years later, uh, we were at about 150 engineers in that location. And my, my organization unit like grew 
kind of 5x. And then my, my career also went like this. So before that, I, I, I kind of worked my way from a junior engineer to mid-level to senior to to the, these levels. And then at Uber, I became a manager, uh, starting from like a few people. And in the end, I was leading a, a group at Uber who was doing payments. And the interesting thing with Uber is uh, we, we talked about fast. I, I worked in a group at Uber called Uber Money, uh, which was a large group of maybe like 300 or 600 people. Fast is an Uber Money alumni. So mm. co-founder, head of, head of engineering, head of product, some other people who joined and left, they're all Uber Money. It's, uh, it's one of the reasons I was able to cover it so well. I just know so many people there, which was very interesting slash weird. So yeah. Yeah, but so much of what we're going to talk about is this idea of like different cultures and expectations and things like that. But so using fast as a way into this conversation, um, one of the key things here um, to establish is that until, you know, two weeks ago, uh, fast was considered to be, you know, one of the rising stars of the startup world. Um, was Maybe just like say a little bit more about what fast, you know, was fast is, to be. fast. Yes. Fast is, as we've discussed on the show, one of those one click checkout, uh, companies Essentially that Amazon's uh, patent on one click checkout had expired, expired in 2017. And that, right, right. And that created the opening, you know, for, for these guys to exactly. Come in. Yeah. Um, and fast, um, I, I suppose bolt is probably the, the leader in the That's space. Right. Yeah. Um, but fast, uh, got an investment from Stripe. And so that was one of their, uh, sort of claims to, um, I don't know, prominence as well. Um, and until about two weeks ago, everyone thought everything was good, including, um, as you said in your piece, um, that the people working there thought that, and, and I think this is a key thing is people thought that Okay, there's tons of people being hired, and we're just waiting on another round of funding. We have our main competitor bolt at about what is it a thirteen billion dollar valuation? So clearly things are going in the right direction. And then two weeks later, everybody's fired and it's over. And so one of the first questions that I have for you specifically is, based on the people that you talk to internally, was it that rapid? Like if you had talked to somebody a month ago today inside Fast, would they have told you that, yeah, everything's going great guns? So I actually had a friend or a friend of a friend who was considering joining Fast from a year before, and he finally made a decision in November and started in February. And he actually asked my advice, and I, I told him, like, you know, it looks fine. Here's a couple of flags that I see. But, you know, it's, it's a startup. Like, it's, it's risky. Uh, there's all, all these things. This uh, person actually, so I, I, I talked with this person uh, extensively, didn't really see too much going wrong except for uh, the last few weeks. Uh, like for this person, the, the biggest thing which was not reported, the co-founder went quiet. Allison, the co-founder, just stopped responding and like completely un unreachable. And th this was the only thing, e except for this, they thought the Series C was coming. Some people joined in December. They were told, join quickly. Uh, they put an exploding offer in December because they said the Series C is inevitable and they're going to reprice the shares. And that, that's when their SVP of engineering joined. That's when their CFO joined. So people were convinced. And also the other thing is people were being hired. So my, my source told me uh, every week there were new people starting because offers were extended earlier. And up to three weeks before Fast was shut down, Three weeks before, four or five people started. So it looked completely normal. And and at the same time, because I think this is key to this, this is certainly key to 
what would be red flags in retrospect and, and key to probably why they burned through $100 million in a year. Um, they were paying extremely strong base salaries. They were pay, They were offering extremely competitive um, stock compensation, right? Like, the, again, it felt like they were hiring with confidence, right? They absolutely were. They hired amazing people on paper. Well, I mean, amazing people in general, but their pedigree was incredible. There's a person I talk with who worked at Google before, Facebook before that, and Microsoft before that, who joined fast. And the reason they were able to do it, as you said, cash, the cash salaries were as high as big tech, except you could work remote. And the stock looked really good because they they did give an, a forecast of how much your stock will be worth when, you're, when there were 12 billion. And both was worth worth 11 billion. So that 12 looked realistic. And again, without looking at the underlying business metrics, everyone was really confident. Uh, in fact, I talked with some people later, there was just a really huge positive feeling in the company that you're doing something great. They're, they're on, like, it's, it's just going to succeed, which by the way, should be another flag because at a startup, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fight to the death. And, and fast, they were not fighting to death. They were not like mm. stressed. They were building all these, like the people who joined later, I talked, you know, they were like architecting these massive systems to handle all this load, which, by the way, did not exist. So that, that was another thing. But obviously, the, the problem was the business metric was not there and the business was not making money. No one knew except for the uh, leadership and, and managers and engineers got, daily, uh, sorry, above L6, so like senior uh, mm-hmm. engineering managers and staff engineers above got a daily report of how much the business was doing and the numbers were really small they were so small that they were spending more on AWS uh, in, in a month or close to as they were doing in, in terms of revenue but engineers did not see this. Well see I only know this because of your reporting from, from your newsletter but three red flags in retrospect is number one as you're just describing they're, um, they're, they're building out a huge infrastructure for a business that isn't actually coming in, right? And then number two, um, once you get to a certain level and you see the daily metrics, you're like, well, but <laughs> there's no money coming in. And then number three, something that you pointed out is that when they would talk to people, they would always use the hockey stick growth of the hiring, not revenue, not clients that were signing up for our one-click checkout. It was all about how much we're hiring. So when you combine those things, you, you actually did the math in the piece where if you, if you take a reasonable average of what they were paying all the engineers that they hired, it's easy to see how they could burn through $100 million in a month. Absolutely. And to me, yeah. the hockey stick is the big one. You know who else used this hockey stick with the wrong y-axis? Hopin. Hopin is uh, the you know the events platform who did really well. Their hockey stick was valuation, so they showed how their valuation went so much faster to five billion than anyone else. But I would say one of the biggest red flags: if a company measures itself by headcount or valuation, it doesn't matter. You need to see something that says revenue or, or customers. As those those two are actually VC fundable metrics, right? Because these companies they're not going to be profitable from day one. But to get funding, you need to show that. And the best advice I've, I've gotten from a people who've been there and reflected on this, before you join a startup, ask two questions. One, do you have your business metrics defined that, that tell us if the company is successful? Two, does everyone have access to those close to real time? If the answer is no to either of these, consider not joining that startup because that startup does not have their priorities straight. 
but either they're incompetent or they're hiding something. Well, I, I, I do want to come back to that because I, I do want to go down your list of suggestions for joining oh, a hot awesome. startup. Um, but essentially, is it... Uh, there's no way we can speculate in terms of the founders and, and their motivations, And although there's uh, a now infamous 20-minute um, VC episode that is live that people can listen to. But do you, based on your conversations with insiders, I've heard this too, that people loved the culture, loved the people they were working with, and loved and, and felt like they were doing good work. And so is... In theory, is this a situation where the founders uh, drank the Kool-Aid as well and were convinced that, okay, our main competitor is already over a $10 billion valuation. Um, all we've got to do is raise this Series C. It's all going to be fine because we're going to get $400 million in, in our next round. So um, let's just hire, 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 go full full hog. Like, is this, is this not... <laughs> It's not fraud. It's maybe just incompetence in the sense that they also were uh, ex- overly excited. Yeah. So, like, this is a thing where I think some people compared this to the fire festival, which ripped off like actual people who paid their money. And in this case, you know, like that that did not happen. The people who were hired, they they got a great salary. They got paid. In the fast festival, uh, employees did not get paid. So everyone got paid. They were drinking the, the Kool Aid. Yes. There is a question. I think the only question goes back to the competence of the founders. Like, what founder is someone who cannot calculate their own way or who does not, you know, is able to forecast a fundraising? And that's it. Like, I, I think it's safe to say the founders are incompetent in running a business because if someone, if the employees have to find out the last minute that the money is all gone, that is not a good business. I, I think Listen. that's that's just fair to say. It's incompetency on the founder to not see that you're burning that quickly, even if you feel like that there's a, a yes, monster. Yes, I, I mean, the founders should yeah. see the, the, the And the board, and the board. But anyway, and, and, Chris, and the board, so founders and the board, yes. Right, right. Uh, Chris, yeah. please uh, jump in here. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I think, um, I mean, it, this has been very useful to sort of, you know, one, sort of go through some of these, you know, the red flags and some of these issues and concerns are, you know, around burn rate, um, and, and, and runway, of course, um, I, I pinned a tweet, uh, to, uh, one of my favorite tweets from John Borthwick, um, which of course is, um, I think it's, uh, what is the animation? Uh, regardless, there is a dog essentially assembling a train track as the train is speeding down the track. And that is what he describes as entrepreneurship. And I think in many respects, it's, that's true. And if you're blitzscaling a startup, there is this almost this need to like keep building and burning and driving. I mean, think, think about like a a rocket launch um, and the amount of energy that it takes to sort of, you know, get into the atmosphere and the gas that's burned at, you know, a certain uh, level um, until you reach, you know, uh, cruising altitude or, you know, outer orbit or something in startups uh, that do have product market fit. Um, and I think Uber is a good example of this. You know, you do need to be spending a shit ton of money. I mean, the reason why some of these companies raise is for that purpose, because they want to essentially take over the market as fast as possible um, before anybody else can. I think it's a really, really challenging dance to figure out what the right level of aggressive and like 
super aggressive burn is relative to being super savvy and having the right level of metrics that's tracking your progress and your success. Yeah, but conversely, hiring hiring at the top. Listen, I. Being well, I, pro I, I don't know how I, you 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 attract that talent without well, that's actually true, putting that's that true, on, right. So the only you know, point I wanted to make is what you're yeah. describing, or or what Fast was doing, is the inverse of the lean startup model. <laughs> you know, um, they were they were going big. Um, Right. But okay. So, so what I'm trying to do, okay. And, and I, I want to set this up before we get into some yeah. of the, uh, the advice and the tips, because I think that this is very important to understand from a macro, I don't know, like sort of economic, um, context, right. You have a bunch of consumer software, social web, social media stuff, very, very cheap to build essentially, especially, you know, in the era of AWS, then you move into a world where you're, building software for the real world. And and by that, I mean, Uber, like Uber was one of the first that really kind of brought a lot of the mechanics of digital technology, you know, through the iPhone and through GPS into being able to manipulate the real world and book a car. And so the amount of people and engineers that you needed on the ground to be, you know, building these systems and adapting to local laws and regulations and to have these, you know, sort of remote distributed decentralized teams out there in the world that were quite autonomous, you know, that did require a huge amount of money. Fast, in contrast, is entirely SaaS-based. And they were building software. They weren't really interacting with the real world. Yes, they were doing payments, and payments you know, in fintechs are um, typically quite expensive. But they're essentially trying to do one-click checkout for the web, which, you know, I'm sorry to say, but having worked on OpenID and identity solutions back in 2007 through 10, I mean, there were existing technologies and solutions. And yes, there are, you know, product challenges and adoption challenges and doing the integrations, you know, was always hard, but you don't need at least, you know, again, I, I don't know. I wasn't at fast, the same level of money to execute uh, on that opportunity. However, you need a ton of money if you want to hire the top talent and blitz scale. So my sense and feeling looking back on this is that, you know, fast had so much Uber DNA that like the Uber folks kind of mm. brought that mentality, mm. right. Mm. To a SaaS environment. And, you know, it's interesting because Dom, uh, fast CEO, his previous startup was Uber like, uh, in that he, it was called Toe, and it was based in Australia. And he had built out this network where, you know, if the government, I guess, wanted to tow a car or something, they would, you know, use his service essentially to book an Uber-style tow truck, and then, you know, go and I don't know, <laughs> like tow tow the thing or something, right? So that also had real-world aspects. So if you're used to spending for those types of environments, and then you bring that into the software world, then I can start to see how some of those distortions um, in spend would happen. I also can see how if you have a lot of Uber, you know, like DNA in, in the company, that when you go out to investors, you use the same Uber playbook and pitches to justify how much you're spending. And I think that's that's one of the things that it's important to look at when evaluating and thinking about these companies, like what are they solving for? Where are their real you know, costs? Um, and when their product actually hits the market, is that market the real world? Is it the virtual world? Is it, um, and, and how do you sort of think about that um, from, from the headwinds that the company might be facing? Okay, so I'll step back, but I just wanted to add yeah, that. Yeah, Chris, I, I, I'd like to respond to that because both sure. of us worked at Uber, right? Exactly, like, that's right. And we, we overlapped in 2016, so. Yeah, and there's a huge difference between Uber and Fast, and I think Fast doesn't realize. So 
I, I worked at Uber starting from year five uh, or, or, or year six, depending on how we look at it. But five years later, five years after the first engineer was hired, and I talked with a lot of, I, I talked with the first five engineers extensively to understand what they did. And unlike the first two years of Uber was very different than the first two years of Fast. Uber was always very cheap in hiring uh, yeah. people. Sorry, they, they paid them well, right. but you could only hire an engineer if you had a revenue target. If mm. like we we had to say, even when I was there in 2016 and 2017, later it has changed, but I had to make a case. I, basically, if I said I can make $10 million with one engineer, I got it approved. If I said I can make a million dollars with an engineer, it did not get approved. Uber was always very efficient and very focused on only hiring people who brought in revenue. My sense is that first of all, the, like some of the people who fast hired, they were not early Uber, like not like early years. They, they were a lot later. They joined in when Uber was big. It was as big, you know, it was more similar to Google in, in, in many ways, where you were more disconnected. Uh, you were used to we were used to longer term plans. Uh, that's one. And I, I feel the company might have cargo culted this like, oh, let's pretend to, to do these things. But one thing that they missed that Uber did not miss and some of the other startups that early on uh, scaled up, including Netflix, did not miss. Those companies all tied hiring to revenue. You only hire the person to bring right. in more revenue or right. more customers. And that did not seem to be there. I think you know people believe that they're building something bigger. And they don't have to worry about it. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's an interesting. I think, yeah, I think that that's that's. That totally, I think, actually tracks and, and adds more depth to what I'm trying to, to point out, you know, which is that oftentimes the last company that you are at or the last couple companies you are at will inform the way that you approach and solve problems. And so if you were part of, you know, the Uber rocket ship, right, then you would bring some of that hustle, some of that fastness, some of that ownership, some of the, the cultural values, you know, to the new company that you find yourself at. And it kind of becomes a, a set of heuristics that you use to, you know, solve problems. You're like, oh, I solved this problem before at this other company. But I think that your point is really well taken, which is around discipline when, you know, hiring and bringing people on that you know are actually going to, you know, hit the bottom line in a very positive way. And I think in fast case, I'm not even sure that they had necessarily like product market fit, right? Because on the one hand, yes, Amazon, of course, in the one-click checkout thing, you know, powered a lot of their business. It's, it's not too dissimilar from Uber, you know, getting into the idea of, of mobile one click, you know, book a car kind of, uh, ideas, but you have to build the entire service apparatus around that, that takes advantage of it and actually creates an elegant solution. And the fact that fast had to rely on third parties implementing and adopting its solution and couldn't, I, I, I imagine, I don't know, um, go deeper into the customer experience is probably one of the reasons why there was, you know, one, so much hiring, so much headwinds. And also that you couldn't, I don't know, it, it just felt like, that visual that I was describing with the dog, you know, building the, the, the railroad tracks feels like they were like, Oh, just around the corner, we're going to, you know, make a, a, a new investment and it's all going to work out. And all the money that we spent on this is going to be fine. And we're going to keep the rocket going. When in fact, the, the fundamentals were completely flawed. Absolutely. Plus one other interesting thing is uh, two things. One is there's this joke. Uh, if you want to wreck your startup, hire from some, some hire somewhere from Google. Because, you know, there's this notion of that they'll come in and, and they'll expect what's there. Either they'll expect what's at Google or they're going to build out whatever is at Google. For example, a lot of early, a lot of Google hires in management, they're going to put a performance review framework in place wherever they go. It doesn't matter. It's the same as Google. And you, know, you don't need that at startup. That's one. But the other is there's an exception to this, uh, which is Replit. Uh, Replit is a, um, a startup. They're, they're kind of a coding playground, so they you, you can code through the browser and you can run your code, debug your code. It's it's got yeah. like billions of, of runs and tens of millions of people are using it. 
this company, they hire from Google and from Facebook, but guess what? So this company is valued almost at a billion people. They have, I think, 40 employees, four zero. So they, you know, the, the, there are the startups which, which leverage, highly leverage really good people, but they hire very, very few of them. And they're scaling very carefully to not go over cash flow. But point, I, I would worry about any startup which is hiring in bulk from, from big tech uh, without product yeah. market fit or, or without a good reason, as you said, Chris. How do you make a password that's strong enough so no one will guess it and it's impossible for you to forget and do it for a hundred different sites and make it so everyone in your company can do the same without ever needing to reset them? Sounds impossible unless you have one password. More than any other product I've ever told you about, I can vouch 1000% for one password. I can't live without it. One password makes strong security easy for your people and gives you the visibility you need to take action when you need to. Any device, any time, one password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. One password's award-winning password manager is trusted by millions of users and over 100,000 businesses from IBM to Slack. It beat out 40 other options to become Wirecutter's top pick for password managers. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash ride. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com slash ride. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. All right, this this is a this is a perfect time to to mention some of the the advice that you had in your piece for if you're joining a hot startup. Um <clears throat> because then let, we'll we'll seg into Okay, you don't want to take the risk of joining a hot startup. Uh, go to uh, established uh, tech company. But the first thing that you you say is um, you can ask for numbers, and and well, that's not the first thing you said. You, the first thing you said was do your own research. Actually, because didn't you you actually someone reached out to you from Fast to be hired, and you yeah, googled so, so around about fa- the founders. Well, fast, fa- fast is Uber money, right? Like it's uh, yeah. I, I know people. And the people, the person who reached out to me, I know that person, I trust them. But then I did some research and I found this article on the founder, which showed right. that in my reading, it showed that this person did not have 
really problems with going to edit morally questionable things like selling personal information. And I decided I would not work at a place which is CEO. And also his last company went bankrupt. And well, I guess, you know, surprise. That can happen. Ne- 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 but, uh, well. yeah. uh, uh, anyway, Past performance it, it is not always, attitude, you know. Right? Like I decided that I did my research and I didn't like what I, what I saw. But I that's, also didn't that's... like the name change. And, and this was me. I did my research. Uh, my point is, if you don't do your research, don't right. blame it on anyone. So, but you know, that's th- the point: is that a simple Google search, you found the founder changed his name. The founder had these questionable things in his background, and so you're like, "That's not for me." So, number one, simply do your due diligence. Which, getting back to the thing that I said first, which was ask for numbers. Again, if you're someone that is interviewing at a startup, you could put on a venture capitalist hat and evaluate the company's chances. Because what are you going there for? You are going there for the potential for life-changing money if this company is successful. And well, so, but, but Brian, just be careful about that because the things you're going for as, a, as an yes. investor, right, and making lots of money absolutely can be one of your reasons for joining Motivation. a startup, right? But if you want right. to get early enough into something where it is going to be life-changing, you know, fuck you money kind of thing. Right, right, You've right. kind of got to be so early as to be unclear that the thing's going to work out, in which case, but, if it doesn't, hold, hold on, if it doesn't work yeah. out, then you do need to be choosing for the people and for the experience and for all the things that go into actually working on something that you really, really, you know, care about, right? Like, Okay, I, and, and I, I'll grant you that, and I'll give you the nuance way to say it. Yeah. Yes, exciting idea, exciting team, people that I love putting a dent in in the universe, all that is great. At the same time, you have, your your career is finite. And so you do have to put on a certain hat that says, is this a strategic good move? And and the key that I think Gergay says when you ask for numbers is you can interview the interviewer. You can ask for, yes, you can ask for, show me some numbers on a piece of paper. That give me some graphs, show me, show me the hockey stick, but let me look at what the Y axis is like. That is okay to do. Right. But you've also got to be pretty savvy, like one, to know the right set of questions Two, to understand aspects of the business. Now, maybe that should be the case when you, you know, go to work for anybody, right? But, but, but at at the very least, if that is something that turns them off, that would be something that would be interesting to learn. I mean, you know, like it's interesting because, like, when, when again, I talk with early Uber, like top five employees, they have no clue. <laughs> yeah, like, I, they, they, that's they, what they I'm like wondering. The idea, they like the people, but yeah, back like, then, is this the realistic? Did not add up. So yeah. there is an element of like you can't really do it, and especially I think it depends on what level you are, right? Like, yes. the more senior you are, so right. if you're a software engineer. Uh, where you can, you're absolutely employable. Whatever happens, sure, you know, just take a risk. You like the people, do it. But you don't need to do too much due diligence. If you're a director of engineering or a VP of engineering, and you're kind of late career, mm-hmm. you absolutely need to do these things. Uh, and you know, maybe the people did do it. Uh, I'm I'm still surprised that they managed to get the CFO of Venmo join as their money was running out. Right, and, which and was an interesting from career Okta. move. Uh, yeah, SVP of engineering from Okta, which again, like you know, those people like. For them, they'll, it, it will be a little bit more painful, but clearly they'll, they'll have a good network. Uh, I mean, also, at the same time, we should give kudos to the founders for selling this, right? Like, they, they managed to attract really good people who, who, who uh, had a lot of other options, and, and they chose it. So I don't know how they did it, but that, like, 
in this case, this startup didn't work out, but the founder charm clearly was there, which it yeah. did go for the company. I think we should, you know, acknowledge that. And this company didn't work out, so like it might not seem positive, but a lot of companies work out because the founders can attract people, like 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 Fast has. Okay, let, this is this is how I want to seg into the reverse side. So this is thinking about. I'm an engineer or any sort of employee, whatever, and maybe I'll join the hot new startup. Um, maybe I leave a fang company to join the hot new startup. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to read from your piece. You, you say, base salary is the risk-free component of any compensation offer. Equity is less risky for publicly traded companies. However, public equity has its own risks. So the risk here... Uh, for fast for a you know um, a startup uh, is that it goes to zero. Um, so let's talk about and then we can talk about culture and things like that when you join a um, an established maybe even publicly traded company. But this is for both of you actually. Um, so what are the risks in terms of if I were to join any publicly traded company today? Uh, it, it is in in terms of like the stock options that you get. How much of the risk is in like if if your Facebook is down what thirty uh, percent from its highs, forty percent or something like that? Yeah, yeah, like six months. Yeah, yeah. So what happens if if you're if you get an offer from Facebook? Like what 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 sort of thinking? And this is for anybody, either of you, would go into that. Like, are you? Betting on a bounce back, or like, what? What do, you, what do you think about established companies, especially public traded ones? So, this, this used to be an easy answer a few years ago. And like, here, here's the thing: like, a lot of software engineers are incredibly lucky. Software engineers are one of the few people, one of the few professions where you get executive level compensation for not being executives. Any other industry you look around, the people who are getting these type of ridiculously high offers that senior software engineers do are are all executive directors somewhere. But software engineers are in demand. That's where we're getting it. That's one. The other thing is most of us software engineers have no clue how this works. Uh, in the last 8 to 10 years from 2010, uh, the thinking was you join up a FANG, a Facebook Alphabet, uh, Netflix, sorry, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, or Amazon. And they were called FANG because up to 2015 or 2016, their stock growth was very strong and it kept on. And the thinking was the stock would only go up. You join them. You get a grant, it'll be higher. This was our kind of very simple thinking, and it kind of worked. It's like Moore's law. It, it worked until, until it didn't. And now it's starting to not work. So now uh, software engineers need to realize that if you're getting a large equity package, an executive-level equity package, if you want to make the most of it, you need to think like an executive or, or an investor, uh, which goes back to actually, you know, like I would recommend uh, software engineers listen to, to, you know, like read the VC resources. I, I, I subscribe to newcomers letter and, and I, I track all these things because it's, you know, I can try to give some quick advice, but it's, it, it's all the same. You need to understand like how the market works, why it's up, why it's down. When interest rates goes up, why is that bad news for late stage companies? These kind of it's 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 all the same uh, except you're not so you know like it's you're now a stock investor in whatever company you're at uh which is a situation a lot of engineers are not used to we were used to tech just going in one way and that was obvious yeah i mean i think the thing that's kind of both challenging and interesting about this this conversation um and and the timeliness of it you know one of course there are macro market trends that are you know changing and that 
you know, for a lot of engineers or a lot of people in, in the tech world, we haven't necessarily experienced, you know, I mean, there was, there was like a lot of crazy stuff happening in the eighties, you know, when I was in grade school, uh, that may be coming back again. And I don't have any context for those things. And so when it comes to making some of these decisions to Brian's point, I mean, th- there is a, a, a calculus or a calculation, um, that you can make, but at the end of the day, you are essentially making a set of informed bets based on your life stage, based on your goals, based on what you're trying to achieve, based on the lifestyle that you want, you know, based on a number of different trade-offs. And you kind of have to take a stab at where you think, you know, one, you're going to have the most happiness or two, maybe, you know, you're thinking about your risk tolerance based on where you are in your career, based on people who may depend on you, um, you know, whether you want to, you know, have a family or contribute to those things and how much, you know, a, uh, like the startup lifestyle will enable or disable the type of life that you actually want to lead. Um, you know, and this is kind of why I was pushing back on Brian's point about making a purely, and I don't want to say rational, but purely economic decision about where you to go, go to work. I mean, you're going to have to get up every day, hustle super hard, you know, deal with, you know, schedules that are out of your control and all sorts of other things to sort of make this thing that doesn't exist turn into reality, as opposed to, you know, going to maybe an established player or a fan company, you know, and dealing or, or working in a place where there's a lot of, you know, established procedures and there's clear culture and there's, you know, documentation or in theory, um, and maybe it's not, you know, super maintained, but you know, like at least there's trappings of it. Whereas in a startup, you're just building all the time. You don't have to have time necessarily to do all the documentation. So, Again, like I guess part of the thing that I think is really important in, in thinking about this, and and you sort of uh, uh, alluded to it, um, Gergay, that in joining Uber early, of course, there were things that you sort of knew or could imagine working out or happening. But of course, there's a whole host of things that are completely unpredictable or very hard to predict. I mean, the number of things that were trying to kill Uber as it was you know coming into being were, were legion, you know, and it really it sort of did kind of create this early culture that was really resistant um, to a lot of those those outside you know forces and to that negativity. Um, I don't know, although I was going to say, I don't know how that tracks or applies to a place like Fast, where clearly people both saw dollar signs as well as the opportunity to be in a culture that you know gave them a lot of flexibility and gave them a lot of support. And you know, probably was like, an amazing kind of opportunity. I mean, if you were there early enough and fast, you were like, I'm on another rocket ship. Like this thing's going to be, you know, super meaningful and super valuable. And then, you know, in a, in a matter of moments, the whole thing dissipates and all of your financial plans and aspirations and hopes that you thought were going to, you know, turn into something once the company was worth $12 billion, suddenly becomes worth nothing. And so all of those plans that you had made and all those considerations and calculations, you can go back and you can check your math and you can, you know, reconsider the decision that you made. But, you know, you made a bet and you placed your bet and this is how the cards turned up. And that's, that is just part of like the startup game. So I think it's, if you want comfort um, and security, obviously a a much larger, you know, boat, (laughs) like an aircraft carrier um, going with Fang isn't going to rock that much, but you're also not going to get the highs, uh, you know, of, of getting into, um, you know, a turbojet or something um, and having that experience. I I feel we're kind of going full circle. So like six or seven years ago, where startup Al Jackson I published an article saying uh-huh. why you should work for, for startups. And his point was, I, I think it was like, don't, don't, don't work for startups for the money because you're not going to get any money. Uh, just, just accept that you're not going to get a debt. Your options yeah. will be zero. Right. Go there. Like he said, go there for the experience, go there 
to grow a team, grow their how to learn to manage because you're go crazy until the startup goes bust or, or something happens. And actually at Fast, that's what happened with a lot of people. So I, I know some people, even from Uber, who joined them. Like I, it, it, like it seems to me it's enough positive for them. They got a lot bigger um, responsibilities. They, they, they hired teams. They, they grew. They, they created product lines. And you, know, you can argue about how much revenue they brought. But they did all this stuff. And if you go to a startup and, and you, you're okay with your options being worth zero and you're getting a positive from there, you might be a lot better off, actually. And uh, sorry if all Jackson said, which I think is still true, that all, the, the, the certain, like if you want to make the most money with the lowest risk, go to a publicly traded company. Do it. Like, like that is the way to do it. The work will be more boring. It's hard to get in there. But th- that's how it worked. That's how it always worked, by the way. It worked with IBM or, you know, when Microsoft was a risky thing. And uh, you have to get lucky with, with the companies. So as, as I really like, Chris, like think about your risk appetite. And that my two cents is honestly like think about like people's careers as long these days. Few people retire early. If you think that you're going to have a 40 year career, it's cool to do a few years in a startup, uh, like knowing that you might help make that much. You figure out when that might be a good stage for you. Maybe you, you, you first save up some money. Maybe you don't need to do that. But my strong uh, thinking is that work at a startup and work at a large tech company. And once you've done the two, you're going to know so much more about your strengths, your weaknesses, and you'll be a lot more employable. Now, um, to seg a little bit, um, you've also written eloquently about joining an established company from an engineering perspective and showing up and feeling like, whoa, uh, this is not, on an engineering quality level, this is not what I thought it was. Um, and it, there's lots of things that I could go into in this one, but um, just give me your thoughts as as an engineer um, if you if you go the route of joining an established company and feeling like either the culture or the quality of the engineering is not, if if you're thinking, well, this is this is a safer bet or this is um, a more established thing, but finding when you get there, it's maybe more chaotic than you expected. What what is your high level thinking in terms of from a software engineer perspective? You show up and you're like. Man, this kind of seems like a cloud show, which I didn't expect. My, my my thinking overall is you need to keep an open mind. So when you go into a startup, that's you know I was joking how Google engineer goes into a startup doesn't really end well, especially Google engineer who's been at Google for five or ten years because they have a way of thinking. But if that engineer goes into an open mind, saying I know to expect chaos at a startup, they'll be fine, right, and, and they'll adopt better. S- same thing with large tech companies. From the outside, somehow we all idolize them and. You know, they don't make too many mistakes and, and we somehow think they're, they're a lot cleaner. And by the way, a lot of teams are like that. But usually, like everyone I talked to, I, I had someone who actually joined Twitter and they told me, oh, my old startup, like we used to have 15 minute uh, continuous deploys. I, I pushed the code in 15 minutes in production at Twitter on their team at six hours. And they're like, well, what happened? Like I, I, I got an upgrade on title. I got a lot more money. I feel I'm back in Stone Age. Uh, the, the point is, go in there with, with an open mind because you're going to learn things and you don't understand the history. Like that company was a startup at one point and it turned into something else. So the, the best thing, the best thing that happened to me uh, is like, you know, go with a low ego, uh, 
don't try to bring in all these like people have these ideas that everything must be great and there must be great tests and, and linting and, and all of these things that big, big startups and <laughs> the biggest mistake they do when we hire a senior engineer at Uber, they will come into it and in the first month they, they would want to fix our, our coke quality and because they they felt that as a big company we should have that and we, we didn't need it like at that time. So going with an open mind, help your team first like pick up the rhythm like, like the number one suggestion I have is start working the way people are working, even if it makes no sense. And a story I keep telling myself, which I wasn't there, but it's a really good story. In uh, the two, early 2000s, when, when Facebook was growing like crazy, they hired Kent Beck, Kent Beck. And Kent Beck created extreme programming, and he was a huge test-driven development fan. He might have created test-driven development. I'm not sure, but he, he, was, he was part of it. He's the Agile Manifesto guy. And back in that time, for software development, like everyone did what Kent Beck was saying. So he shows up at Facebook and he organizes a test-driven development talk and people can attend these talks and no one shows up. And then he realizes that Facebook does no unit testing, which went against every conventional wisdom at the time. And he kind of sucked up his pride and he started to work the way they worked and realized that Facebook is just different to every company because Facebook didn't need unit tests because they use customers to test for them at scale. The point is, like, just you know, let let go of your at, for the first few months. Just keep an open mind, like you know, turn into a sponge and just like go with the flow. Take things in. You'll be so much better off for it. The same thing happened for me at, at Uber. I, I was shocked at how bad things were, but I was like, well, you know what? It's it's the world's like most valuable company at the time I was there. They must know something that I don't. And I, I learned a few things. I, I also and I was able to see later what they were missing. So yeah, don't don't expect the world. <laughs> there, it's 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 it, it might be shiny, but it's not gold. Well, again, th- this piece, I, I I could I could go down the list of the things that that you recommend. Like you know, if it, it depends on what team you land on. Like if if it's a prototype team, like you know, the the quality of the engineering doesn't matter. If it's um, before product market fit, a similar thing. But w- one of the things, and, and this is my last thing, and Chris, you can jump back in. I heard that, but. Uh, um, for someone, again, I've never been in this situation. One of the things that I feel like if you haven't been a part of a big organization before, um, I'm going to read this from from your piece. Um, when when products start to miss the business metrics that they should hit, they become at risk for their headcount getting reduced or being shut down altogether. People think that established companies... That 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 you can't lose, but at the same time, that's not how it functions. Like there could be um, uh, succeeding and failing startup cultures inside all of these product things, and so if if you're if you're expecting stability, you can't necessarily. That's not necessarily what you will find, depending on what team or what product you're. Uh, you show up to, to work on, right? Uh, absolutely. As you said, there. Like, I feel large companies are a mix of startups that just have better funding, but they do get shut down. And especially what you don't see. And okay, last advice is like work at a startup, work at a large company, become a manager at one point when you have the opportunity because you start seeing stuff. As a manager, you are afraid of of your team being shut down and. People might might not get fired. Sometimes they do, but of of them being sent to do something else. So there there is fear. There is fear of failure. It's not as strong necessarily as a startup, but but there is that thing. And you will do stuff that does makes make makes no sense, but it, it it makes perfect sense once you understand the context. 
the large company context is just very different. They're not stupid. It's it's just different, and it takes a little time to to understand. The same way as you know, learning a, a language, the grammatical rules look stupid at first, but once you learn it, you realize there's a reason for it. Yeah, I mean, just a, the thing that I wanted to add to that um, is. And I think this does happen uh, as you mature, I suppose, um, that you you start to build up uh, some level of respect and consideration for, you know, like, I don't want to say like your elders, but the folks who came before and were solving problems. And th- what I find oftentimes in, in younger startups, you know, is a certain hubris and uh, arrogance and ignorance, which sometimes is completely necessary in the startup game in order for people to get started to say, well, you know, the way you do something is so stupid, you know, like we have all these things now we have AWS, we have like, you know, uh, like sunk infrastructure that is now part of, uh, I guess the, the solution space that wasn't there when a lot of these companies were, were being started and being founded. And so they were built with a different set of assumptions and solving for a different set of, you know, needs and requirements. And oftentimes at a, you know, breakneck pace where they were just solving for that, you know, momentary problem. And they weren't thinking necessarily about like the long-term implications. And then there are these huge rewrites that oftentimes are are contemplated and considered and then executed on, which then can take years and years and years that actually never materialize because you're trying to sort of solve problems from a different era with a different level of urgency. And you're trying to also anticipate everything that could ever happen almost like in a legalistic way. And it's just not possible. So I think it's important, I guess I'm, I'm building on what you're saying to come in with that sense of, of, of respect and awareness that the, the experiences that you have had as someone who's not part of that culture or did not build, you know, the thing or the scaffolding, um, like there is a, a new recipe or a fusion perhaps to occur, but coming in and just blowing everything up because you're like, Oh, I don't like the way you do these things. And, you know, like you said, like, Oh, I used to do these things at Google. And so therefore that's the way to do it correctly is actually quite wrong because the, the, the nature of the environment and the skills even of the people who are part of that environment need to be part of your kind of consideration framework for making changes. So it's actually much more important. And I, I don't like, actually, I'm, I'm curious how you approach this, um, Gergay, like, from a listening and learning perspective while also needing to build and execute. You know, one of the things that I remember uh, that was, I guess, famous for Facebook in the earlier days is that on your first day, you had to commit something and launch it to get you into the cadence of how fast Facebook moved, right? And that was uh, in opposition to other places and other cultures where you had either a waterfall software development method that was very slow and considered, and you had to like write all these tests and make sure the thing didn't go down because the systems weren't built for that level of fault tolerance. But Facebook came along and said, no, 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 we want to actually move much, much faster. And like you said, we, we're going to test on live users and hey, if it breaks, no, no problem, move fast and break things. Um, and so they were trying to retrain their culture or, or at least train up a culture that had a, a bias for action as opposed to a bias for consideration. So how do you, I guess, sort of advise you know, engineers to take that approach where they are being evaluated at how fast they need to execute and at the same time, you don't you don't want to necessarily bring in all your known patterns into this new space, which you know in which they might be inappropriate or just not really well calibrated. Yeah. So if you're working at like companies that actually have good onboarding, which which actually, for example, at Uber, we miss a lot. And you know, if you're lucky, it's easy because you're you're you join, you're you're told to ship on week one. And a lot of companies, by the way, all the better run companies, they do this whole thing of like ship on on the first week or yeah. try to do it even earlier, yeah. and then that's easy. 
if and I have seen this at Uber, the, the longer someone takes to to actually ship their first change in production and just contribute to a project, the worse they're going to be off because they're going to be starting thinking about stuff. They'll they'll draw up like I, we had a staff engineer who joined us, started drawing up architectural diagrams because didn't have anything else to do for months, and then you know and then got fired because this person didn't understand what was going on. Yeah, but like. If, if you don't have this, you know, you're not as lucky to, to be told to just keep your heads down. Because at Uber, even for the most senior engineers, at least, we try to tell them just just learn. Like, just do the stuff, like do the coding, even if you're not going to be coding like 90% of the time later on, just do all these things. The, the best thing I can do, like, there's this book called The First 90 Days, which I recommend to every software engineer. And it's everyone when you join a company. In the first three months, people like decide uh, how they're going to look at you. And after the, the next year, no matter what you do, they're going to remember your first 90 days. So the best thing you can do is at any company that you join is just be productive and play by the rules of, of how they're doing and, and don't, don't appear too smart. So, you know, like save those things. So what I recommend to people is first of all, start a note and make a note of everything that you can see being improved or not making sense. It's, it's, it's going to be a document with like questions and observations. And for the questions, just ask people. Be super curious. What happened? How, how did it go? You know, talk to the old timers. Why did you do it? But hold yourself from, like, just make a note for all the things that you want to uh, suggest, but don't suggest anything just yet. Uh, ship stuff, like, like as, as fast as you can, you know, like, overdo your, your onboarding, do it faster, uh, get nosy into, into other projects, and just, just help people. But, you know, do it in their way. And after two or three months, if you've done this, you earn respect because what a lot of people forget is your team needs to respect you to listen to you. But once they listen, once they see that you can actually do stuff the way they do, uh, you know, you're kind of like one of them that you picked up the, the pace. Like if this, uh, they, they see you as, as a peer, then they'll start to listen to you, especially if you're a really productive peer who now starts to help people. This is an approach that I've seen work every single time. The problem that gets in the way is the more experienced people are, the smarter they are, and the more they feel that they need to do changes on day one, which starts resistance. And it goes into politics, which is people's influence. You know, you're not going to know the dynamics on the team until you've just kind of worked side by side and people trust you and they tell you the real scoop and all those things. So this is the one thing I, I know always works. You know, there might be some other ways. And, you know, Chris, I'm interested if, if, if or, or Brian, if, if any of you have, but that, that's, that's what, what, what I've seen consistently. And this is a combination of be curious, be humble and put in the work in the fir- in the first like few months. Just focus on helping the most that you can. You'll put away your pride, and then later you'll have all these opportunities open up for you. Uh, that sounds like good advice to me. I, I'm I'm going to ask a question again from being naive for have never been in this situation. And this is for both of you. How much does cohort or generational stuff? matter like even in your piece you're talking you know there could be a team that has been brought on by acquisition right and then there's the team over there when it was only eight people and they've been through the wars and they're all veterans and things like that um so this is again for both of you um in your experience to what degree when you're in a big company is it sort of like, well, you weren't there at the beginning or, well, you came over here from that acquisition or you, you know, like how much of it is it like this sort of click style thing where it has to be siloed because we do it this way over here and we do it that way over there. Like how much of that can be actually sanded down or does it, based on your experience, kind of always operate independently? 
I mean, it sounds like you're talking a little bit about ossification um, and also territoriality. Um, mm. And, you know, I'll just, politics. I'll just like, politics. yeah, okay, politics. Like, I'll, I'll tee a few things up, um, you know, and then, Gergi, I'm obviously curious to hear your experience. Um, like, I think it really depends on on the team to some degree. And it also depends on kind of like the the ultimate culture that you're moving into. Um, my experience at Uber, you know, was such that, like, well, one, I mean, the team that I was on was quite young. We were the devel- developer platform team. Um, and so we were, you know, figuring out a lot of things. There was a lot of internal churn um, from people moving from one team to another. And so there was no um, ossification in that sense. Um, there was a lot of dynamism. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of chaos. Um, and so the, and I think I was actually quite, I don't want to say like unprepared, but, you know, relative to my experience at Uber, which was, um, you know, it, it did feel like you were a part of a flotilla of just many large seasoned, you know, kind of organizations with obviously like a ton of money and certainty behind them. And so when you were taking, you know, big risks and bets, you know, you always had the core business to kind of fall back on in some respects, whereas Uber was fighting for its life and its existence, um, at least throughout the period that I was, I was there um, and had to really prove something to the world. So in that sense, it was more like a, Hey, we are, we are, you know, kind of jogging slash running forward. Once you join the team, like hurry the hell up and start doing stuff and start doing stuff that's that seems useful if someone you know is i don't know like i don't know why i'm thinking about sort of like a like a war deployment or something but you know like if you're going to be part of like the team that drops in you know behind enemy lines or something like you've just got to like learn on the go you know ask the right questions observe um kind of constantly be checking yourself and making small incremental kind of uh contributions here and there and then finding those opportunities where you see a space that you can you know, kind of establish, you know, what you're doing in a way that shows that you've learned kind of what the priorities of the organization are, what your team's priorities and needs are, and you can contribute in, in those ways. Um, I, I didn't, there were certainly managers at Google, um, you know, that were quite territorial. And I would say in some ways, maybe, you know, personally insecure, uh, you kind of wanted to steer away from them because they weren't really motivated to help you to to grow, to learn, and to achieve. Um, whereas in other teams that I've been a part of where that there was a kind of egolessness, um, you were brought in and as long as you contributed, you know, and, and made an impact, you were, you were cool. You know, you, you kind of went along with it, but Gergay, how, how was your experience? So w- what I see is I, like one of the biggest differentiators that I, I see is in talking about kind of modern, like well-run startups and companies, every company works in a way that there's a team and they have a mission. And they kind of like they're not told exactly what to do, but they're told what metrics they should care about and yep. you know like what what things to move. Yep. Every team is like this. Now, if you're in an organization where your team has a lot of free space ahead of them, basically they have five or ten times more work than they can handle. It's gonna be a real a great place to work in the sense that there's gonna be no politics because everyone is stretched as hell, and they'll be everyone will be happy to, for you to help. Like you can you can approach anyone and say, Can I help? And they'll be like, Yes, take on this, please, or uh, you know, help me with this. If you're at a place where the team does not have as many things to do, uh, they might actually have more people than work to do. There's going to be a lot of politics because people will be elbowing and they're going to they're going to try to work on this project by themselves or to claim that they've done it to get a promotion and all that stuff. It becomes more more toxic. And that like there's there's managers uh, depend. You know, there's people on the team. But the biggest two things I've seen, and I've seen this at Uber, I've seen it on my team. When I joined, we had so much stuff to do, and it was a great time. We, we just had a reunion, and everyone talked about that year where we had so much to do. 
And like we we all had imp- huge impact. Like like people made millions of dollars by like shipping a buck fix. And then later, the same team, we didn't have as much stuff to do, and we started to kind of you know like there were too many cooks in the in the kitchen. Uh, so I think that's the biggest difference, and that's a great reason to join a startup, by the way, because at a big company, yes, you might make more money, uh, you might uh, be more stable, but you actually just might feel that you're not like you're you're kind of doing like one tenth of the work that you could be doing at a startup. Uh, you have the base salary and the equity might be turning into nothing, but you're not going to have any problem. Like you're, it's, it's such a good feeling when you feel that everyone is giving their best and you've kind of achieved something more than what you thought you would as a group and, and yourself. So I think that's a big difference I've seen. And that's the difference between old Uber and like later in my life. Uber. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features features help you say the right thing at the right time every time plus you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to constant contacts best in class 97% deliverability rate i use this and you should too tackle any challenge with constant contacts expert live customer support plus everything's backed by their 30 day money back guarantee so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at constantcontact.com just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season, when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing, I only ever turn to our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Gergay, uh, the Pragmatic Engineer newsletter is the number one technology newsletter on Substack. Um, is, so I'm going to plug that for you right now. Uh, I'm not kicking you out of here because we're going to talk about Twitter and Elon Musk in a second. And, and actually, I, I, I will ask you what you've been hearing from uh, Twitter employees about that. Uh, but is there anything else you want to plug uh, aside from the newsletter? Uh, that's it. So feel free to subscribe to, to the newsletter. It's, it's free to do so. I also have a YouTube channel where, where I talk about uh, things. And you can find everything at pragmaticengineer.com. From job board to, to companies that I invest in, I, I invest in some developer tool startups. It was, it was great to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited now. My, uh, my 
newsletter slash blog sometimes shows up on TechMe, which is awesome. <laughs> well, listen, look, um, you've got incredibly valuable stuff on there. Um, so let me let me do this, and to the degree that you're comfortable doing it, um, let's go ahead and seg into the news of the day, man. Um, what have you God, been seriously. hearing from people? Forget before we get into debating Twitter's existence and stuff like that. Specifically, Gergay, what if you have? Have you been hearing from people inside Twitter? And actually, you know, Chris, you might know people like like that as well. Um, uh, what are what are Twitter people thinking about what's going on right now? So I, I'm talking with engineers mostly. Obviously, that that's who I talk with. And there's like two groups of people. Well, one thing that they share, they know nothing, and they're just refreshing the news. And this is kind of understandable because they're you know like the board cannot share anything with them. But there's a big frustration of like we know nothing and we're getting all our information from the news or directly from Twitter or Elon on whoever. And they are worried a little bit of, of what will happen because now a post-sell takeover is on the table. You know, it could happen, right? Uh, and they, they're worried about if this happened, you know, they're not speculating. The biggest questions that they have, engineers, is what, what, uh, assuming Elon took over Twitter, would remote work work stay? And some people who are remote work fanatics are, are worried if, if this happens, they're, they're going to leave. And some people who have friends at Tesla are a bit worried about, about what the culture could change, assuming you know, right. Elon Musk takes over. Uh, because right. Tesla has a very different culture. You know, like again, the uh, both in terms of pay structure, people are doing well there, but it's it's not, you know, it's not mentioned the same thing as Spang. And the last one, people fear for the culture. Right now, Twitter engineers at least have a super positive culture, very strong emphasis on diversity and inclusion. They yes. all feel supported, they don't feel stressed, uh, they feel there's a good work life balance. They're fearing if Elon comes in, you know, he's going to push people. They're going to throw out diversity and inclusion on, on the window. Uh, so there, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think people are just afraid of a potential culture change because a lot of people went to Twitter because they liked this positive uh, culture. That, that is exactly what I wanted to talk about. And again, Gergay, if you stay with us, uh, you're completely welcome. <laughs> if you need to go, I know you're in a different time zone, so you're, you're free to go. Um, when I was thinking about this after I, I posted the show today, um, and Archie's whining in the background for some reason, um, the the thing that I was thinking about was if you're the Twitter board and you're going to do the fiduciary duty sort of thing, and et cetera, et cetera, like there's all sorts of reasons which we could get into, even like a specific financial reasons why they they probably can't answer his his letter yet, but. One of the things that you would say is is we can't accept this proposal because we have a certain culture here. We have a certain we have talent that expects a certain culture and a certain way of doing things. And what is clear, and he said, I listened to the TED talk today, is he wants to change that. He wants to change how Twitter functions and what Twitter's mission is, essentially. And so I'm almost wondering, I think there's a hundred percent chance if it already hasn't happened that the board will reject this offer. Um, but I, I almost feel like there's no way that this can go through because of things like that. And by the way, um, um, uh, Gargi had to, had to bounce. So, um, I'm asking this of you, Chris, and whoever wants to raise their hand to talk about this. Yes. Uh, (laughs) um, God, there's, I mean, there's so much to, to, to sort of, 
I don't know if this is like armchair quarterbacking or contemplating like the changes that could happen as a result of this. I mean, I feel like the thing that I saw when I saw the news today, you know, where he's like, look, you either accept my, you know, 54, 20, uh, um, offer, or I bounce and I take, you know, and I sell my 10% share, share uh, stake and then, you know, the stock tanks or something as a result. I mean, it's a very, mm, not just like aggressive, but sort of obnoxious and yet maybe necessary move. It feels like this game of chicken um, is kind of about saying, look, like the direction that Twitter has been on is one that doesn't really jive with how Elon sees the nature and the the purpose and the utility of Twitter. And that is probably the, the deepest, you know, concerning or open question as to, well, what does he really think about it. How much does he, or what are the parts that he does appreciate and what of the culture, you know, that, that is, and has been, I think being built up over the last several years at Twitter um, are, you know, what parts of those are relevant and what parts need to be removed. And I don't know ultimately if, you know, he, so go ahead. Well, well, that's my point is that if you were the board and you, I I think there was an all hands uh, an hour ago or a couple hours ago or something like that, like and and you hear that look there's a revolt then you, your fiduciary mm-hmm. duty is the asset that this company has aside from you know the the advertisers aside from the community aside from the users is the talent and if the talent is like hell to the no yeah then there's no way you can accept this yeah. now can i tell you one other detail that mm-hmm. i've heard from wall street folks which is interestingly um, they don't necessarily have to respond because if you read the letter legalistically, I'm not a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he has to state in there that he doesn't. I, I, I made the I made the joke in the in the in the title of the show today that uh, financing secured. He doesn't actually have the financing, so they don't actually have right. to respond to this. Somehow he has to essentially get liquidity and maybe sell a bunch of shares from right. You know, so so this is not yeah. yet a. And 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 it, everyone says in the in the headlines it's not a binding thing because it can't be binding until he can prove to them that he has the money to make this happen. Um, I don't know. I probably derailed what you, what what you were saying, but it, it, well, I think right, what, I, so. So what you're asking, yeah. I mean, in a way, is whether or not this this game of chicken that I've described is actually real and whether it is likely to actually, you know, go through. And what you're saying is, well, if he doesn't even have the money or can't get liquidity, or there isn't some private backer that shows up, you know, that's willing to put down the money to make it a real offer, then the board may not even need to consider it and they can just move on. If on the other hand, he is somehow able to marshal that level of, of resources and, you know, do what he said, um, then it could go forward. And then they have to actually respond to it. I think what we're broadly asking is, you know, what would the nature of change be you mm, know, mm. at a platform like Twitter? Um, yeah. And what would those changes look like? What are some of the changes, you know, like, uh, I what was, do you well, mm. answer that question for me? What do you think he wants to change? And, and I know, I, I don't know if you listen to the, the Ted talk as well, but I'm not, yet. I don't, that, that yeah, was today. It, 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 yeah, uh-huh. and he kind of didn't. Oh, edit button for sure. Blah blah blah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Great. If you if if you had to, if you had to pundit this, yeah. What do you think that he would want to change to Twitter? Um, look, I mean, obviously, we can't get into 
Elon's head or what he really wants to do. Uh, he's he's clearly someone who cares a lot about um, freedom of expression, not being censored, you know, having the ability to kind of do whatever he wants. Um, as, as we talked about before, if you remember um, when we had the Tesla guy on, I think literally that's his YouTube name, right? Um, I was sort of bringing up the point about how Elon like is specifically like neurotypical and as a result is able to see things from a very different, I would say unclouded, you know, perspective that doesn't care so much about kind of like the current politics or whatever. And so I think he's so effective at the things that he, you know, works on because probably like Zuckerberg, you know, has that eye of Sauron effect where he starts to focus on it and is able to execute simply because he's able to ignore a lot of the, I don't know, whether it's like niceties or the politics or whatever that a lot of humans tend to obsess themselves with, as opposed to thinking like long-term. And so the way that I would frame this question is in 10 years time, what is Twitter and how is it being used? And, uh, you know, wild speculation, you know, if, if Elon wants us to become a multi-planetary species and he also wants to spread human consciousness throughout the galaxy, I I know this is going to sound completely ridiculous and stupid. And I, I swear I haven't taken a gummy or anything like that yet. Um, but like Twitter could be the, you know, kind of communication platform for this interplanetary uh, species, um, as a decentralized protocol. And this is something that I know, you know, Jack Dorsey obviously has cared a lot about. Um, it seems, and I don't, I don't want to, again, I don't know anything and I, this is all speculation and like, who cares about Christmas Cena speculating about things. But, um, if it's true that Jack and Elon have been talking for some time, and talking about what happens next and talking about you know crypto and bitcoin clearly they have a lens on where they think these things can go and are probably thinking through some of the implications of of what could be unlocked if these things were you know successful and we didn't have to worry about the current situation or the current i don't know rules and laws and all these things that exist so my question is how does a project like blue sky the initiative to decentralize twitter become mm-hmm. successful and it doesn't seem to me that with the incentives that are driving Twitter's business, i.e. advertising, that a project like Blue Sky has a clear path to success and to even launching, frankly. Like, in whose interest is it for Twitter to become a decentralized platform and protocol? I don't know that it's the advertisers. I don't know that it's VCs. I'm right? not sure that it's anybody's Correct. except for a broad society, but yeah, yeah. Well, 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 well right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're thinking like long-term, the only way in which that could possibly happen is if an individual like Elon Musk buys the company, takes it private, and then makes that decision as the owner of the platform, right? So if Jack Dorsey yep. has been having, the, having this battle with Elliot, uh, you know, management, and they want, you know, Dorsey to get 300 million users or whatever it is. And they have all these requirements from a business perspective for him to turn this thing into something else, you know, to be somewhat competitive, you know, with a Facebook or a Google. And they're like, well, you know, that's not either what Twitter should be, nor is it kind of like the whole, you know, germ of this idea like that, like ruining it with ads, turning it into another AOL or Yahoo isn't really the way that we want to go. You know, that, that, that OK, that's again, back to the fiduciary duty thing is. Mm-hmm. You know, Elon has said a couple times that well, he's doing this as an investment. Although he didn't in the in the TED talk today, but I, I look, you know, don't hold Elon to anything. That I mean, he said one day. an investment like like, like there'd have but, to be but, money that comes out of it, or or well, no, but in import. right, no, but in in the in the letter to the board, he says that I can unlock the value. 
do you see that money? The value doesn't have to be monetary just to be clear, but continue. Mm. Sorry. Continue. No, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, I was actually asking the question of if, and I know we're talking about billionaires and, and the equivalent you of have that level of money. It's like, what are you going to do except try to at least okay, but, change the world in a way that, you know, you think is ultimately, well, that, that, that's the Matt Levine argument, which is, this is just his favorite game and he wants the game to, to run the way he wants it to run. But uh, okay. Let's, 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 let's devil's argument that because people look, all of us, you and me and everyone in the world has been like, you know, Twitter is so amazing and it's so under, not undervalued, under, Exploited. I mean, Twitter under, definitely like like punches above its weight in terms of its usage and adoption in terms of cultural without making power. as much money yes. as it should based on its. Uh, power. So I mean, if you're evaluating its success based on how much money it should it should throw off, right? Okay, well that's what that's what I'm trying to say is like, do you see a an Elon Musk argument that I can do this and I can turn Twitter into a three hundred billion dollar company? Um. I suppose the question is how and what is it doing well, right. like, yeah. to, to make that money and where is that money coming from? <laughs> Are you charging all the users? You what, I mean? what would you, yeah. How would you change it? Like, like how would you get it more sticky? How would you look? I mean, uh, Twitter has a number yeah. of monetization projects that are going on right now. And it is unclear to me that any of them are successful. It is unclear to me like like any like projects that are currently on the web are going to rival, you know, what Google did with, you know, its its search ad business or what Facebook is doing with its uh, attention business, you know, attention advertising versus intent advertising. Like those are the two major things. People come to a platform like Twitter to express and to share and to see what's going on in the world. Now, granted, maybe there's a news angle to it, but it, like, like even like CNN and CNN Plus, right, which wants to charge you know, access for, for its news. And they got what, 10,000 signups over two weeks. And they were spending, I don't know. I saw ads across all the platforms uh, that I'm on try to get mm-hmm. people interested. Mm-hmm. It just, mm-hmm. it seems like the product market fit is not there. People have an assumption about how content should be free. And so, you know, I, whereas, like, whereas with Twitter, the new, that's the fucked up funny thing about Twitter mm-hmm. is the product market fit for news on yeah. Twitter Yep. Is the greatest thing, and you just you just mentioned the, the 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 ad business with Google, which is the most insane, yes, you know, business model. <laughs> but like, in a similar way, what Twitter is for news for a certain people, and not for everybody, because otherwise, you know, mm-hmm. they'd have a larger monthly active user base. But it is so completely perfect, um, and so like bringing up. CNN Plus is interesting. It's like it's almost like this is where this is how news has to live this it's, way. Yeah, it's interesting that that you're talking about news because there is like the news industry, and then there's like news, right? Which is the the phenomenon of new information that hopefully is valuable and useful, you know, and has a perspective. Um, you know, actually, our, our good friend um, Alex Kanterwitz uh, was having a, a conversation with um, and Antonio Garcia. Um, Martinez on his, on his recent podcast episode. And they were talking about this, this dynamic of, you know, what is journalism? And I think it's really, really valuable to put that conversation into this container because there is news and there's the things that are like constantly going on that are like, you know, causing us to kind of like go mental because of how much our, 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 um, 
attention is being, you know, attacked and then monetized, right? So you're putting things in front of people who are, you know, constantly kind of being blared at, you know, I call it like information waterboarding, which we actually choose to do. I mean, that, that is like the TikTok kind of experience. And there's a difference between that, which is designed to just kind of like, you know, provoke and keep you, you know, kind of engaged versus, you know, reporting and newsiness in journalism. You know, which I think you and I do, and I think you do much more so um, in some of the reporting and the context setting and the remembering on behalf of the listeners and the audience. And so to think about what Twitter is and what Twitter becomes and how Twitter functions in society, like it is an information like uh, circulatory system. So if it were to decentralize, then the question becomes, well, what is Twitter, the company actually doing? Right? Is it the one that defines the protocols and sets the rules? Well, that's well, a type of shit. Government, I've said, governance. I've said for years that Twitter should be a protocol. It Twitter was be, a protocol. Twitter started right. as XMPP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It should be like any email or whatever similar protocol. Wait. Um, and and again, this I, is what Blue Sky is doing. So it is coming full yeah. circle. And then again, so the, the the question that I'm trying to ask and frame, right? We went off uh, t- target a little bit with asking about what is the value of news, and you know, like it, Bezos bought Washington Post, right? Is that a big money maker for him? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, I, I saw a great tweet where it was like <laughs> Bezos buying the Washington Post. Meanwhile, like the, buying Twitter is so much more. Effective in this day, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, but it, well, it depends on editorial, right? And I think that that is one of the big questions. Like, is it similar to a Bezos buying the Washington Post and being more or less hands off? But then you do have this question: Well, where the, where does the money come from, and will negative coverage come out of the Washington Post about Bezos' initiatives? And I believe that the Washington Post folks try to at least say, you know, Bezos is hands off, like he's not in the newsroom; he just you know believes in supporting journalism, etc. But then you have on the other side a lot of folks who are really concerned about. Again, that news industry, like capital N, capital I, which has its own set of interests, which, you know, previously as the fourth wall, you know, seemed to have more independence or integrity or something, you know, back in like the, the, was it the news muck, muck, muckraking days. And it feels yeah, like muckraking, yeah, yeah. some of that has been either neutralized or the power of those platforms to define the nature of the conversation, what goes on there. Like once you are on the inside, once you're a Jack Dorsey or an Elon Musk, you see how the news determines how you speak. I mean, we've had this conversation about future.com and Andreessen Horowitz, right? Once you get to a certain stature, you no longer want these platforms to sort of, or I guess the news media, the news industry to be able to speak on your behalf. You want to have that free speech. I mean, we are engaging in a lot of free speech right now, and it's amazing. Like, no government is going to come in and censor us. But mm-hmm. if we wanted to get this out to the world through the news media, the news media says, well, you guys are not interesting, and so we're not going to put it out there. I think that even the conversation we just had with Gergay, like, he is his own sort of journalist. He is talking about the engineer's experience. Where is there an engineer that is writing for a, a major news publication yeah. about the engineer's experience, right? It doesn't happen. Yeah. So yeah. you have to have that independent media. And that's what Twitter largely is, you know, in 280, you know, bursts and, and, and so on. So I don't know, like, I guess I think that whatever it is that, you know, Elon thinks that he wants to do with Twitter is probably quite different than the conventional types of things that we would think that he would want to do. You know, it's, it's, I guess I would be hopeful and maybe I'm naively hopeful that the changes that he would want to make are more along the lines of kind of validating a decentralized, you know, system, which is what he did with, he didn't make it decentralized, but certainly with space, you know, the way that I always grew up thinking that space was something that only governments did. And he, you know, Mm -hmm. proved Mm -hmm. that 
private companies actually are much more effective and efficient at it. And then he did the same thing with electric cars. Electric cars used to be shit. You know, like they used to be like the, what was the, the leaf or the, whatever the Toyota thing was. And it got like 12 mm-hmm. miles, you know, to a charge. And he proved that that also wasn't the case. So is there a different version of Twitter that we can't even imagine? I, I think there probably is. And the fact that Twitter is still more or less the same as it was in 2006, you know, there's been plenty of time to, to try a lot of experiments and do different things. And, you know, as, um, who did I see this? I think Ryan Sarver tweeted about why, you know, there hasn't been a lot of innovation on Twitter is because there's been just so much drama over the years that it hasn't been able to focus on just, you know, shipping and getting things done. So uh, two more, two more questions and then we'll wrap this, but, um, and and listen, you can, you can completely decline this one and we'll move on. But, um, uh, have you been hearing from anybody inside Twitter? Uh, I've seen some tweets of people subtweeting and obliquely talking about stuff, but uh, do you have a sense of how people inside Twitter are feeling about the last Oof. week or so? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's incredibly distracting. You can decline. I, I'm offering you the opportunity. To yeah, no, no, I like, I, I don't think I've, I've, I've heard anything that's uh, I'm I mostly actually what I'm seeing is actually on Twitter. Um, there's a lot of people who work at Twitter who are tweeting about what's going on and about uh, the sense of dread or fear or like, you know, like, what does this mean? And for, for, I, I you know, I've never worked at Twitter and uh, I don't have, um, like that many insights about how the company kind of operates or functions today. But I got to imagine in the last couple of years, the company has probably come together or people, you know, who work at Twitter have come together in a way that's very different than it was previously, you know, certainly, you know, with, um, remote work and everything that happened with black lives matter and with, um, just cultural moments, you know, that happened on or with Twitter and where the internal culture of Twitter seemed to want to become a lot more inclusive and a lot more aware of the negative experiences of the bullying, um, you know, and the responsibility that these platforms had to address some of those concerns. I mean, a lot of the innovation, ironically, um, has, has, or I don't want to say like ironically, but maybe finally has been about making Twitter a more inclusive and, you know, safer space for a lot more people and a lot more voices. And that is new. And, um, you know, I don't know if 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 Elon wants to roll that stuff back and go back to the way it was before. If he wants things to be more like, you know, Reddit or like like the meme wars or like Discord or like these other kind of you know seedy places on the internet. Um, I, I mean, I hope that's not the case. But I, certainly, given that he's kind of like you know the meme lord and the troll in chief, maybe that's yeah. the way it would go. And so for people at Twitter, they're like, we have come so far and made so many improvements from a you know cultural perspective, and for finally taking these interpersonal, you know, kind of concerns more seriously and the role that technology can play in them that I, I got to imagine that they're like really worried that their last two years are, you know, possibly for not. That's, that's why I think this is a, a, a dead rubber thing, at yeah. least, you know, to the degree I don't, again, read Matt Levine and he'll tell us how a full hostile bid could happen. Um, I, I want to real quick yeah, because I did see, um, internally how the folks at ted uh managed to put uh elon's thing up for free for what people was the, today what was the surprise uh, i think uh he said like there was one more thing or something uh did i uh, you mean elon said that no 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 no, no. uh chris chris anderson from ted 
Um, oh no! Seemed to I, imply that there was going to be something after the Elon uh, talk. Oh well, I don't know because by the time that happened, I was oh, preparing for this. Okay, yeah, it. so okay. I don't know. But I, I got to say, I saw internally them scramble and like put it together, and I was outside and I still could watch it. So like, holy oh. shit! The fact that they put that video together that I could still stream. <laughs> so that is yeah. Impressive. Yeah. And, and, and I saw them doing that this morning, like, well, we've got to take this behind the paywall. And I was like, okay, God bless you guys did it. All right, Chris, mm-hmm. I'm going to a big AI startup demo day here in the city tomorrow, and I will 100% be decked out in Mack Weldon clothing. Why? Well, Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes, but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. That's their Airnet underwear. Crazy, comfortable, but elevated sweatpants, the Ace Collection. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads, the Silver Peak polo. That's my personal fave. And ultra-soft antimicrobial tees for when you need to stay fresh longer, their Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code RIDE. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code RIDE. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO5 pocket pants, the right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. My last question for you about this, and this is serious. I have, this is the question that I thought of last night when I first heard about this. And I've thought about this personally. What would what do you think could change in Twitter to make you stop using it? Oof. Um, and, and you want me to go first so you can think about it? Um. Sure. Yeah. If you have some thoughts about it, yeah, go for it. The thing that concerns me, you know, if the talent leaves or whatever, and things and things go bad or whatever, and I, you know, I don't know. Elon could buy it and and shut down all our accounts and say, "Fuck right. you, everybody." Uh, yeah. uh, then we've got no choice. The thing, because you know, one of the things I woke up to all the people being like, "Well, if Elon owns this, I'm out," and things like that. And 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 I don't take that seriously because you know, whatever. But the thing that I 
have valued Twitter for for my 15 years on there is that the people that I've curated that I trust, mm. this is my best outlet to them. And so if they were to leave or if a certain percentage of them were to leave mm-hmm. and they would maybe go somewhere else or whatever, but like that would be the thing because the bottom line is it is, it's the social graph for me, but it's, it's the information graph. And again, I, I'm maybe a special case because this is what I do for a living. And, and, but like if there were a certain percentage of people that were like, fuck this, in the same way that people left MySpace and things like that, then I would have to go to where they were because what I value is their information flow, right? Yeah. Um, so that's, the, I. maybe there would be a period of time where I would still have Twitter, but then go to wherever everyone else went or something. So I'm just curious, is there is there something that you think could break Twitter for you? Um. You know, one, one thing just to, to maybe, you know, clarify, like what happened in MySpace was, you know, a couple things. And I don't think that it was that people were like, fuck this, I'm out. It was more like there was a better thing and MySpace still stagnated. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. like, yeah, I mean, like Facebook and came what along I just said, and made a clear, uh, uh, you know, space. Right. And, and all the, the people that you cared about went somewhere else. And that's kind of what I just said. Sure. Basically. I mean, well, I think for me, and you've suggested this, like that would be a lot of people, you know, I, let me see as of now, I don't even really check this. Um, but you know, I follow 8,000 people, right. I clearly don't see 90% or probably 95% of what people post, but the things that I do see, I do find incredibly valuable and interesting. It is my watering hole. It is how I stay connected. It is how I see the future um, and understand. Yeah, I follow, I follow 2200. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I understand like what's going on. So, so I mean, if, all, if, if even 500 of those 2200, depending on who they were, well, actually, like, so, so, but, 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 but actually yeah. one thing that's very important is that there are a lot of other people who I do not follow who those, you know, if those are those 500 people, um, you know, those people retweet, and they share content from other people who I don't actually follow directly. So there's a discovery angle and like a um, sort of a, a flow of information across multiple networks that ends up finding me that I think is very important. So I guess to try to answer your question, you know, not only would there have to be sort of like a mass exodus, but, you know, Twitter would need to cut off uh, access to, you know, the web you know, that you couldn't publish, you know, like it's, I think Mm. one of the reasons why I don't find Facebook to be compelling and I literally, you know, don't go there anymore. And I really barely go to Instagram anymore, you know, is because the, the nature of the content has become, well, certainly on Instagram one, a lot more commercial. Um, so everyone's there trying to make a buck or sell something. So this is so interesting. Keep going, keep going. This is so interesting. Yeah. And, and it, and it feels more extractive than it is generative. I honestly feel like, you know, as, as much as there's, stupid shit that happens on Twitter every now and then I have an authentic, honest engagement with someone that is, you know, surprising and affirming and useful. Um, you know, on, on Facebook, it, it's sort of talking to the same people who you already know and are connected to. And I guess for me, it is the value of the exposure to, to new ideas or to new perspectives. It's that constant replenishment that I find so it, useful. It's, it's that it's the, it's also the the real time, which was also yep. the thing that, you know, back yep. in the day Zuckerberg was afraid about with Twitter, uh, you know, threatening uh, what he was doing. But that, like, that's the key point. Like I like you go on Facebook maybe once a month. And, and, and especially if I've got pictures of the kids that I want to mm-hmm. show to, you know, the, the residual 
social graph that I have there. Um, it's interesting that you say that uh, Instagram to you is so it's so empty because it's what, what did you say it was? It was be more commercial and more transactional. Yeah. 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 Transactional, transactional. That's the yeah. word. Yeah. The yeah I find, that, go ahead. Go ahead. Go. No, go. Well, I was just going to say like the, the, the purpose or the intent that I find for people sharing on Twitter, you know, as much as there's like dunking and other stuff, you know, like being clever and things like that, you know, the, the, the terseness and the format and the content lends itself to an incredible dense amount of information that can be consumed relatively quickly. You know, even though, you know, the, there's the statement that, you know, a, 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 an image is worth a thousand words or whatever. Um, I find that reading content on Instagram is actually much less efficient because I get through far less of it than I can mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Twitter. And so there is a, a level of, I don't know, composition in crafting terse, succinct, you know, sort of info ch- chunks and bytes that, um, I don't know, it just like allows me to traverse information in a way that sort of really fits into my brain. You know, every now and then I'll pop into TikTok and you really have to kind of like work to get to the meaning or to get to the it's value. So, it's so funny. TikTok is almost the inverse because it's almost like a lean back mm. social network. Mm-hmm. Do, do, am, I, am I wrong about that? Like, No, I mean, you're totally right. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually even better than, than TV because the content, you know, really is not going to be, you know, any longer than 30 seconds to like three minutes. And if you're bored, you know, it's like channel surfing, but you just like flip your, your finger and it's just going to keep showing you things that are kind of maybe adjacent. And then every now and then we'll pop in something that's a little bit random. Like that's why to me, that is kind of, um, again, self-chosen information waterboarding. That's like, you know, somewhat pleasurable and yet you can't kind of get out of it. Whereas I think Twitter and again, I, this is not about singing the praise of Twitter specifically. It's about how it functions in my life as a source of information from a plural, plur, plurality of sources. And no, so that's we, exactly that's exactly yeah. what we're saying. Like, why? Okay. The, the what something that you said about that, like the vitality. And again, I have a specific job where I need to know the news. But then, I, even before I had this job for fifteen years, like the vitality and the immediacy of the information that Twitter could give to me. And listen, we're, we're, we're different types of users. If you look at the uh, monthly active user numbers, you know, like we're a subset of a subset of a subset, but it is people that believe in Twitter know that it is the greatest product market fit for what they do and what they're interested in. And I do wonder it is possible for those people because they are so committed and engaged with the product that you wouldn't have to tweak it very much for them to abandon it. I, you know, you know I what wonder. I'm saying? I do. And it, it, it feels a little bit like you're kind of like uh, having sort of a, a roundabout conversation about like MPS, you know, where it's like, how bad would the product have to be for you to leave it? And what I think right. is really valuable. That's literally the conversation we're having. <laughs> right? Like to think about is the origin of Twitter. And, you know, we, we sh- this is the crazy thing that I don't, I don't know how to like think about this in alternative, um, you know, kind of a, like the multiverse where there are multiple Twitters. It's like the Loki verse, you know, where there's just like lots of very, very different expressions. And in some ways that has happened, but they haven't really been interoperable. Like uh, Casey Newton was on a space this morning talking about uh, Plurk and talking about, um, you know, like, like, uh, God, what was the other one? 
Uh, well, I mean, Path was around for a little while. There, there are a number right, of expressions right, right. of different social media platforms that have come out, even in the mobile era, that have not really sustained or maintained as well as or as long as Twitter, you know, has. And even if you know, Elon is pissed that you know many of the top users on Twitter no longer come here to post anymore. There is still, you know, sort of a core, you know, base of you know, granted, an, uh, an aging user base, I suppose. But nonetheless, like we're still a significant, you know, segment of of the first era of social internet users that have a lot of, I don't know, uh, you know, life and, and vibrancy, you know, kind of like left in how we use these platforms. I, I guess the thing that I was just thinking about, you know, with, with regards to other platforms, uh, like Snapchat and, uh, TikTok, is the move to visual lean back communication and the use of video for expression. And the layering and the nuance that that goes on in those formats is just entirely different than Twitter. And I think for a lot of people, and I, I don't know how the cold start is for for people um, today, but if you were to start a new Twitter account, how bad is it relative to someone you know who's been on the platform for you know twelve, thirteen years? But also, why why would you, know? you be why would you be starting? A Twitter account. Go start a TikTok account. Like no, no, that's no. where I'm saying something is. different. This is the problem. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Like, like for 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 Penny, for example, right? Like for your your kids. Like if they're going to, you know, yes, they will start on TikTok. They will bypass and probably never come to Twitter. So what does that mean? What does that mean for the platform, for its longevity, for its purpose? Um, or do you come to a certain point in your life or to a certain age where the format and the content and the the ways of interacting on Twitter are actually exactly right and exactly what you want? And I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know, like Twitter is such an interesting, I mean, Facebook, in contrast, has changed the types of, of, of media objects that it supports and it's moving rapidly into a future that is fully immersive, you know, fully 3D. I, I can't even imagine how I'm going to publish like in that space. Whereas Twitter is the most basic, the most primitive, you know, fortune cookie sized pieces of content that are really easy for anybody that, you know, can type on a keyboard can produce. It's a, it's a Zen cone, you know, exactly. Um, uh, which is a, a poem, but, um, yeah, yeah. What are your what are your, I, what are your I, final I, thoughts? Yeah, my final thoughts would be this. Um, I'm willing to bet that this is going to be a lot of Michigas about a bunch of stuff, and nothing's going to really come of it. Um, but it's the first time that I've thought of one of these things going away. Well, no, that's not true because uh, TikTok could have gone away mm. a couple of years ago or whatever, but like, um, wait, what do you mean? Oh, oh, it could have gone away because of the whole Trump China thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just one of those things where like in the way that, <laughs> in the way that, uh, if you were, uh, a Gen Xer coming up with baby boomers and, and like, well, there's rock and roll and there's three channels and things like that. Like, <laughs> This is this is a situation where I'm like, hey, six months from now, like, what will Twitter be like? Where we felt for 15 years that Twitter is in the firmament, and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like, so th- this is one of those times where I'm even more even more than TikTok because I'm not on TikTok. So you know, again, the kids mm-hmm. experience that more than me, but like, I'm like. Um, could this be completely transformed a year from now? 
I mean, I think the, the the real question that you're alluding to, and the reason why this moment is so important, you know, is because first, you know, Jack is no longer there as the you know founder, CEO, calling the shots, deciding whether Twitter should or should not change. You've got a new CEO come in who really, I don't know, has a pretty low profile overall, um, you know, and Elon comes in and is like, you know, this whole thing could be different and could be changed. And for all the complaints about the slowness of Twitter's innovation and change over the years, suddenly you have someone who may be like on the precipice of being able to push the button that says Twitter is going to be completely different. And, and, and it could be better for Twitter as a business. Correct. And it could be awful for everyone who uses it today. And that may also be completely necessary for Twitter to survive, you know, for the next five or 10 years. Because the media landscape is changing, because advertising is changing, because the things that will allow Twitter to persist may not be around uh, or as abundant in those next five to 10 years. So that, I think, is like that gives me a lot of pause. Obviously, you know, you and I love Twitter. We use Twitter all the time. We find great value from it. Um, If Twitter were to go away, like you sort of, you know, were suggesting like a, a TikTok sort of like it just up and vanishes or it's outlawed. What would I do? Uh, I don't have a great answer. You know, maybe we'd go back to RSS and blogs and email and, or maybe, you know, we have to blow the thing up in order to make it a decentralized, you know, system. Um, you know, I, I don't know, but it's, 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 if anything, it's, it's pushing me to think differently about, I guess, the longevity of the platform and what purpose it serves, um, you know, going forward. Yeah. Specifically the longevity of Twitter, you know, no one's going to be able to, as Elon said on the, um, Ted thing today, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the 17th, he won't be able to fuck with Facebook mm. a thousand years from now or whatever, but like, yeah. Um, well, listen, Chris, you have a, you have a podcast platform now. So, um, anything you want to plug before we go? Uh, wow. Um, mm. No, but you know, like uh, for, for anybody who's in the Bay Area or San Francisco, um, I am going to be uh, going to a Republic Happy Hour. Um, I don't often talk about my day job on the show very much, but I do have a day job. I am a product lead, um, and um, that's at Republic. Um, I will pin a tweet to my profile about that. If you want to come by and say hello, um, I'm actually going out in the world, you know, which doesn't happen very often. <laughs> so <laughs> go see Chris; he's a nice guy. Yeah, you know, uh, come say hi, and uh, we can grab a, a beverage or something. Um, Otherwise, you know, Brian, this is great. Anything you want to plug or anything you want to say? No, I'm going to put together the non-squeaky chair, so we'll have it oh, yes. next week. So, so yeah. excited for that. Cool. All right, well, go take care of your All right, later, too. everybody. All right, thanks all. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye.